We will be reading the whole chapter um, this morning. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God, contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. And when he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him, he had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must, by all means, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. You may be seated. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study. 
Father, you've called us to be witnesses to Jesus. You've poured out your promised Holy Spirit in our hearts to make possible what you've called us to. All our days to be, are to be lived in, in view of the mission that you've placed before us to be witnesses to Jesus. And we've seen this, Father, as we have made our journey through the book of Acts. Father, we acknowledge that the mission is from you. And we confess that we don't always adhere to the mission. Sometimes the mission is hard and we get frustrated. And sometimes we lose sight of the mission in the midst of our circumstances. Lord, your word today is an encouragement to the soul to continue on with the mission in spite of trials that come. Thank you, Father, for your comforting presence in the midst of hard times. We need your strength, your grace, your people around us, your word of truth, and your good spirit working in us to be effective witnesses to Jesus. So, Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. That you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God very rarely, if ever, hands out easy assignments. Have you noticed that? On the surface, you might think Adam had an easy assignment. All these trees you can eat from, except this one. Sounds like an easy assignment, easy task. But if we've read the the, the text, we come to find out that it wasn't so easy. And, And on through the scriptures, you can see people like Noah... He was given the assignment of building this ark, a 100-year building project. Easy? I think the time factor alone would have sent many of us packing, looking for something new, looking for something more exciting, especially in the midst of neighbors who undoubtedly mocked Noah and his family for spending so much time on this silly ark project. There's Moses who was given the assignment of leading God's people out of Egyptian slavery. Was that easy? He's going back home where he grew up, remember? He's going back to rescue God's people. And these people were the ones who had been assigned the bulk of the grunt work for Pharaoh in building up his cities. And so think for a moment how well it might go to stand before Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, God sent me to tell you to let my people go. It didn't go well. For some time, it didn't go well. But God nevertheless accomplished his purpose even through a stubborn Pharaoh. What about Father Abraham? He had the assignment of going into a land that he'd never seen. A promised land. It would be known to by many. He was obedient to go, even though he would not see the promise. The same Abraham also had the assignment of taking his son, his only son, this son whom he loved. He had the assignment of taking him up Mount Moriah and offering him there on the altar. Genesis chapter 22. 
Easy? The scripture says this was a test. And Abraham remained faithful through the test. David was selected by God to be the next king of Israel. Easy task, king of Israel. Youngest of eight, shepherd boy, faced this giant named Goliath. He was envied and tracked down by King Saul. He was threatened by his own son, Absalom. And he was even, I was reminded in thinking about David, he was, you remember the time when he's being pelted by dirt clods by that guy named Shimei? David didn't have it easy. Nehemiah, tasked with rebuilding the walls in his hometown, Jerusalem, which in his day had been down for some 100 years, give or take. Easy task. Not when you consider he's serving as the king's cupbearer in Babylon. Not when you consider the likelihood of a pagan king allowing his most trusted advisor to have an extended leave of absence to go and build a wall in a palace far from where he's at. How about Jesus? He was sent by his father to save his people from their sins. He was sent to do the will of the father. He was sent to shine light in a dark place. And yet his purpose took him to a cross. Easy task. He was born in a lonely manger. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. Three days after his death on the cross, he was raised. And after 40 days, then he ascended to be back with his father. And about 10 days after that, according to the scripture, the promised Holy Spirit came. Acts chapter 2. What's the Lord called Paul to? I believe we see what he's called Paul to in chapter 9, shortly after his conversion. These words in verses 15 and 16... The words of the Lord to Ananias, who is going to Saul. And the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name. Before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. Easy task? No. If you read the book of Acts, you begin to see how true these words in Acts 9, 15, and 16 are. He's called to bear the name of Jesus before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Keep in mind that many Jews stumbled over Jesus. Keep in mind that many Gentiles had not heard about this Jesus, and those that did thought it foolishness. Keep in mind that the kings were not at all too happy about another king. Paul has chosen to bear the name of Jesus. And in the process, the Lord is going to show him how much he must suffer for putting the name of Jesus into play. Easy task. Having read through these first two missionary journeys, I think it's become clear that Paul's life is crowded with trials, with persecutions, with suffering for Jesus' sake. And yet he keeps pressing on. He keeps on going. He keeps on preaching. He keeps on teaching. He keeps making disciples. He keeps advancing the gospel to the end of the earth. If God specializes in difficult assignments for his followers, what is your response? 
If God desires to use you for his purposes, and those purposes are intended to take you through some messy situations, some hard things, how quick are you to stay the course? How do you stay the course in light of the trials around you? See, when you know you're on the journey with the Lord to get from where you currently are to where the Lord desires you to be, by the way, that's called in the Bible sanctification, And you find yourself in the middle of the journey. You've got a long road trip ahead of you. You know you've got a long road trip and you're in the car and you're middle of the way. Sometimes, especially you younger ones, can get a little disheartened (laughs) midway through the journey. Are we there yet? (laughs) Are we there yet? But that happens in our life as well with the Lord. We might find ourselves in the middle of this journey. We might find ourselves discouraged. We might find ourselves frustrated, wondering, is this really worth it? What is it that keeps you going and staying the course in the journey? I believe that Paul, as he makes his 40, 50-mile journey from Athens to Corinth, is low on fuel. You ever found yourself in the car Low on fuel? I have. And what are you on constant lookout for when that gauge hits close to E? You need to refuel. You need to refuel. Paul, I believe, is low on fuel as he arrives in Corinth. Listen, when you're you're following Jesus, one thing is for certain and one thing is needful in light of the one thing for certain. Here's the one thing for certain. If you're following Jesus, you're going to go through suffering, you're going to go through persecution, you're going to go through trials when you follow Jesus. I believe that's the pattern has shown itself all along in Paul's journeys, right? The one needful thing in light of this certainty is that the follower of Jesus needs encouragement from others along the journey. We talked a few weeks ago in Thessalonica about help needed. The brethren, right? Help needed. It applies as we make this journey. As you look at Acts 18, these first 22 verses, Paul is still intent on preaching the gospel, taking the message of Jesus to the end of the earth. That hasn't changed. But while he does that, I want you to notice in the text, notice the opposition that comes, notice the encouragement that he receives. Staying the course with the Lord will bring opposition. And when opposition comes, encouragement is needful. So, having just come from Athens, Paul arrives in Corinth. That's what it says right there at the beginning in Acts 18, verse 1. Corinth is about 45 miles, give or take, west, southwest of Athens, It was a strategic location for trade and for commerce. On that isthmus, that that land, that that little thin, if you look on your map, you'll see a little thin stretch of land there. You've got the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea. So you have people that were coming in from the east and going west and west going east. You also have people coming from the land north going south. And so as you might imagine, this was a place where many people intersected 
Corinth was known at this time for their pottery industry, the Corinthian vases. They were known for their metal manufacturing, this, this alloy called Corinthian brass. They were known for their carpet weaving. We know at this time that Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. And commentator James Boyce, he, he labels Corinth at this time with three C's. He says they're cosmopolitan. In other words, it's a mixed bag of people. It's commercialized. It was a place to buy and sell. And it was corrupt. It was said in the ancient world that the name Corinthian was synonymous with some of the most perverted behavior. In fact, Corinth housed the gods, this particular god that you could see. It was elevated above. You could see it from quite some distance. This god of love. Oh, no, truly, it wasn't the love that we know in the Bible. It was a very worldly kind of love, Aphrodite. It was said that at one time, this particular temple of Aphrodite employed some 10,000 prostitutes. And so you, you just imagine that coupled with the commerce, the trade, the crossroads, people coming and going, and how all that played out. This is the Corinth that Paul entered. Verses 2 and 3 tells that they, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, text says he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Tent makers. Oftentimes when we think of tent makers, most of us have this picture and image of a, of a pop tent, things that we would put maybe in our backyard and hang out for a night. And while that is true, that that's perhaps what they did, what they constructed, um, there's also this idea of um, leather, a leather worker. Really the word has in mind, a leather worker, which that leather would no doubt have been used for a few different things, for curtains, for coats, yes, for tents. This is the trade Paul had. And he comes in contact with Aquila and Priscilla, who also are about this same trade. And so they hang out together for a time, and they are working together. I believe in Corinth, a tent maker could do very well for himself. Aquila and Priscilla are introduced here early on in the text. They had recently come from Italy. Emperor Claudius, at this particular time, had commanded all the Jews out of Rome. And what we know to be true from history, this is interesting from a history standpoint. Historian Suetonius, he tells us that there was one named Crestus. Sounds a lot like Christus, like Christ. But it writes of this, this man, Crestus, stirring up much trouble, much dissension in the synagogues of the Jews in Rome. So much so that to the point of wanting to rid himself, rid Rome of this trouble, he decides to get rid of the Jews. And so, what we read here in the text, Quill and Priscilla arrive from Italy in light of the command from Claudius. They are now in Corinth as well. So, Quill and Priscilla 
are in Corinth. Paul has recently arrived in Corinth. Together they work, and they're sharing the same trade. I want you to notice that Luke tells us here in the text that Paul was working. It seems that there's a need at this point for income. Remember, he's been alone for quite some time now. And he seems to be without funds at this point. In Athens, he was by himself. Remember that? Well, the Lord brings to his side a husband and wife team that will prove to be a blessing and an encouragement to him in the days ahead. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, talking about this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they risked their own necks for my life. This husband and wife team became very important in the life and ministry of Paul. So while he works at his trade of tent making, look at what else he continues. Verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Just as he did in Thessalonica, just as he did in Berea, Paul enters the synagogue and proclaims Jesus as the Christ every Sabbath. And as in other cities, some were persuaded. And it's during this time that his co-workers show up in Corinth. Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Oh, this encouragement. Do you see the encouragement here? Do you, do you see this? Aquila and Priscilla come on the scene. He encounters them. And now his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, show up. And if you chart the course of this, if you go backwards in the text, just, just briefly... In chapter 17, you might remember in Berea where the Jews from Thessalonica had come. They learned that Paul was preaching the word there. And they came. Verse 14 of chapter 17 in Acts. The brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. And verse 15 says of chapter 17. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed So Paul had sent word to the Berean brothers to make sure Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible in Athens. There's confirmation of meeting up with Paul in Athens in Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. You get the idea that they did reunite with with Paul in Athens. And you also read in Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 2 that Timothy is sent back to Thessalonica to check on how their faith is progressing. Silas is also sent to Macedonia. Some believe, think that he possibly was sent to Philippi. We don't know for sure. But what we do know, according to the text, is that Silas was also sent to Macedonia. And we know that because in Acts 18, verse 5, our text for today, it says that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, both of them had been in Macedonia. Well, Paul had been in Athens, now he's in Corinth. And now Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul in Corinth. And we see evidence of that in Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. It tells us that Timothy had come back to them from Thessalonica. See, I believe the scriptures would tell us that Silas and Timothy, they didn't just meet up with Paul in Corinth, but they brought a gift with them for Paul on behalf of the Macedonian churches. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9 says that When I was present with you, Paul says, and in need, I was a burden to no one for, listen to what he says, for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. 
And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself, Paul says. In fact, Acts 18 verse 5 says that Paul was compelled by the Spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. The idea here behind the word, it says in some translations, compelled by the Spirit. Um, There are other translations, I believe the New American Standard has the translation that Paul was now wholly absorbed. He was fully occupied with preaching the Christ now. Why? How could he do that? Because Silas and Timothy had come from these Macedonian churches with some funds to help him, to release him, if you will, to do full-time the work of the Lord. And so that's what we see here going on in in verse 5. But we also see that what happens as a result of this preaching in the synagogue, it results in opposition. Not a surprise. When they opposed him and blasphemed, He shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And church, we see the same thing happened back in Pisidia, Antioch, Acts 13, verse 51. He shook the dust off of his feet there. Shaking the dust off the garment was something a Jew typically did to a Gentile. But here Paul is shaking his garment in response to the Jews who confronted Paul to his face and blasphemed the truth of God's word. So Paul leaves, and look, look at this. He leaves, but he lodges next door. I love this. He lodges next door. He's still in the vicinity of the synagogue. He's just next door. And he's staying with a worshiper of God, a man named Titius Justus. I want you to notice in verse 8 what happens next. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. You know, for someone low on fuel, there is nothing that compares to a soul being saved. (laughs) In Corinth, the Jews blatantly opposed the gospel, but not everyone opposed it. First Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and all of his household. I want you to think about the impact of of the leader of the synagogue turning to walk now with Jesus. Do you think the synagogue leader had any impact with those around him? We see immediately he had an impact with his own family. But it also seems to be that the impact spread to other Corinthians as well. The text says that many Corinthians, hearing, hearing the word, that's the testimony of the scripture. How do we become saved? We hear the word, we hear the word, the word of God, and we... Become saved by faith. When you're low on fuel, physically, emotionally, spiritually, how about seeing a synagogue leader in his household and many others hear and believe and get baptized? Things, things seem to be turning in the right direction right now. Souls are being saved. God is working in the hearts of men through the foolishness of the preached word. It's actually happening. And yet Paul, having journeyed with Jesus for some time now, no doubt realizes what's around the corner. Each time the Lord has brought about a harvest, there always seems to be opposition in the waiting. But here in the immediate, right after verse 8, The text records not opposition, but more encouragement. Uniquely, this encouragement comes direct from the Lord himself. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Listen, to stay the course with the Lord, to get from where you are to where the Lord desires for you to be, you need to regularly hear from the Lord. Paul heard directly from the Lord, and maybe you don't get this kind of word. (laughs) But he has, church, been gracious to you to give you his word. Romans 15 verse 4 says that whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Corinthians 10 verse 11, all these things happened to them, to the Israelites, giving them as an examples. And they were written for our admonition. He's also, church, given to you, if you are in Christ, he's given to you his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's ministry is primarily about pointing to God, speaking the words of Christ. He doesn't operate. The Spirit does not operate on His own. But He's only about guiding in the direction of Jesus. So what is it that Paul hears from the Lord that would be helpful at a time when opposition typically draws near? We see in these words in verses 9 and 10, do not be afraid. In the Old Testament, you hear that phrase quite often. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And oftentimes that phrase, do not be afraid, is just essentially to the person that the angel shows up to, the presence of the Lord shows up to. It's like, hey, don't be afraid. Slow down. It's me. It is me. Slow down. You know, he's just wanting to get their attention. Do not be afraid. Here, the do not be afraid, I believe, is applied to those who are standing in opposition to what Paul is doing for the Lord. Do not fear them. But he says, speak. The idea of the word here is to keep on speaking. Keep on preaching Jesus, Paul. He says, do not keep silent. I believe the Lord would have Paul know that the world needs to hear what you have to say. Keep going. Don't let disappointment, don't let opposition silence your voice. You're my voice for such a time as this. He says, for I am with you. Oh, I wonder if he would recall the, those words that, that conclude that great commission in Matthew 28. Lo, I am with you always. I am with you always. Hebrews 13, 5, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When Moses doubted his credentials to bring God's people out of Egypt, God says, I will certainly be with you. Exodus 3, verse 12, I will certainly be with you. When Joshua is standing with Moses before the people and Moses speaks then to Joshua and says, the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. And then God himself in Joshua 1 speaks, God speaks to Joshua with these words, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He goes on in Acts 9, Acts 18, 9 and 10, and he says, no one will attack you to hurt you. What a a reassuring word from the Lord. Think about this for just a moment. The Lord speaks words of comfort to his servant, Paul, diligent to stay the course even in the midst of low fuel. (laughs) 
to hear these words from the Lord would have been such refreshment to his spirit because typical protocol had been opposition in the form of persecution, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned, feet in the stocks. But the Lord's word to Paul is that no one will attack him to hurt him. And then he says, for I have many people in this city. And this statement may seem odd from the perspective that at this point there are not many Christians in Corinth. The Lord speaks, listen to this, the Lord speaks what is currently not, but speaks the reality of what will be. There are many people in this city. This will come to pass because of the preached word, because you are going to keep speaking. Many people are going to come to know this Lord Jesus Christ. Through your preached word. Reminds me of Romans 8, 29 and 30. Which is written from the perspective that those whom he justified, these he also glorified. The glorification hasn't happened yet. But God's word speaks in such a way that it's a certainty to happen this way. See, if you're going to keep going in your journey with the Lord, it's important that you hear a word from him. It's hard to hear from him when this word, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it's hard to hear from him when this word's being choked out by the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in. Paul is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. He is about fulfilling the Lord's desires as he travels from place to place. He desires to hear from the Lord and speak his word wherever he goes. For him, he considers it pure joy to carry out the best interests of his master. And he hears from the Lord because his heart is inclined to hear what he has to say. Hearing these words from the Lord would have been sufficient, I believe, to refuel his tank. You see, when you receive a clear message from the Lord, it feeds your soul like nothing else. You're ready to confront the opposition. You're prepared to enter the danger zones of persecutions because he's with you and he's never going to forsake you along the way. Look then in Acts 18, 11. Text says he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Do you think his staying there had anything to do with hearing from the Lord? You think his length of stay had anything to do with what the Lord spoke to his soul? Do you sense Paul's confidence meter going up at this point because of an infusion of divine comfort and strength? And then here it comes in verse 12. Opposition is rising up. Gallio is the new proconsul in town. Not long after his arrival... The Jews bring Paul to the judgment seat and the charge is stated in verse 13. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now we're not given a whole lot of details at this point to know exactly what the Jews are arriving at with their charge. But Paul is ready to defend himself, we see in verse 14. Paul was about to open his mouth. Gallio said to the Jews, hey, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes... There would be reason why I should bear. There should be reason, there would be reason why I'd listen to you right now. But if it's a question of words and names and of your own law, look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters. Case dismissed. If 
fact, verse 16 says that he drove them from the judgment seat. You get the idea. They weren't too happy that he dismissed the case. Keep in mind that the synagogue ruler would no doubt have been the one, would have been the conduit to go before Gallio, the proconsul, to brief him on what had been going on. That's important in light of what happens next. There's a textual variant at at verse 17. In the New King James, it says, then all the Greeks. But, But really, literally, what we see is they all. They all. In the context, who would they all refer to? More than likely, they all would be referring to the Jews who rose up against Paul. What did they do? They took Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. Gallio, the proconsul, takes no notice of these things. So, on one hand, no harm is done to Paul. He's given license to continue preaching the gospel in Corinth. But on the other hand, Sosthenes, who, if it's the same Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you see that this letter is written by Paul as he's moved by the Spirit, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. I tend to believe this is the same Sosthenes church. Could be a different Sosthenes, could be. I tend to believe it is this Sosthenes here in Corinth. Another synagogue ruler who hears the word and believes. Sosthenes is beaten. Gallio does nothing. Paul is protected in Corinth just like the Lord said. The Lord said he was going to protect him. And the Lord followed through with that. He protected Paul. But Sosthenes is the one who takes the beating. And he seems to be, from the Jews, seems to be an expression of disgust as they're driven from the judgment seat. And I'll show him, say, I'll just beat one of them up. Verse 18. Paul still remained a good while. Again, there's encouragement here. Since the Lord granted him the opportunity, Paul remained on in Corinth. He was encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla. He was encouraged by Silas and Timothy returning. He was encouraged by the harvest of Crispus in his household. And many other Corinthians hearing and believing and being baptized. He was encouraged and strengthened by the Lord himself in a vision at night. And he's encouraged now by the favorable verdict from Gallio who simply dismissed the case. For someone registering low fuel, Paul found Corinth a great place to refuel. The hand of God was upon him here in this corrupt place. And there came a time, according to the text, when Paul needed to leave. The time, as we are reading the text, the time has come for his second missionary journey to come to a close. And in the text, it takes but a few verses The journey, though, would have taken him a considerable length of time. Several hundred miles needed to reach Antioch, Syria, from where he is currently in Corinth. 
he took Aquila and Priscilla with him. Look also at what you read at the end of verse 18. It says he had his hair cut off at Sincre, for he had taken a vow. That seems like an odd insertion here. I mean, you know, we're reading about this and then there's this little sentence about him cutting his hair off, having taken a vow. And while we're not given the specifics behind the vow, it seems that Paul's actions are representative of a vow coming to a close. In fact, one writer says that the vow, Paul, uh, the vow that Paul has made was, was a Nazarite vow, a special pledge of separation and devotion to God. It was usually made in gratitude to the Almighty for gracious blessing or deliverance. In light of that, can you think of anything Paul at this particular point in time may have been grateful to God for as he arrived in the nearby port city of Sincre? The writer says that in Paul's day, provision was made for those away from Jerusalem at the termination of their vow to shave their heads, as Paul did, then within 30 days to present the hair at the temple. The phrase, he was keeping a vow, indicates a process not yet completed. That required his arrival in Jerusalem, which becomes very significant in light of the text. He came to Ephesus, the text says, verse 19. And he left them there. Who's them? Priscilla and Aquila. He left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. That'll be key because they're going to pop back up here in a few verses down the road. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them. Oh, by the way, he entered the synagogue, as was his custom. He goes into the synagogue in Ephesus. He reasons with the Jews. And they ask him to stay a longer time. There's a receptivity to the word of truth being preached in Ephesus. And on most occasions, I'm sure Paul would have been delighted to stay. But not on this particular occasion. He says, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem. But I'm planning on returning to you again, God willing. And he sails from Ephesus. Think about it. Paul turns down a group of his countrymen asking him to stay a bit longer. He had, he had seems like he had two particular things on his mind at this particular time. Getting back to Jerusalem for the feast. Which would mean his need to leave sooner than later. In part due to the time of year. The seas were not passable certain times of the year. So there was a certain timetable for him to leave. To get where he needed to be on time. But there's also the idea of getting back to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow. And he, Paul took this vow very seriously. And he was making every effort it seems to fulfill the vow back in Jerusalem. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, didn't Paul do away with all these customs? And why, why is he still doing this? What, I thought, what happened back in Acts 15? Why is Paul participating in, the, in a vow? We need to remember something. Paul is grateful to God for helping him through his journey. We need to remember that Paul has a Jewish background. It ought not to surprise us that Paul expresses himself in a Jewish manner by taking a vow. That's who Paul was. A writer says that a temporary Nazarite vow involved abstinence from alcohol and also from cutting one's hair. Its conclusion was marked by shaving one's hair completely off and offering a sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 6. Look at verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea... 
He landed at Caesarea. We don't know for sure if that was intentional. He landed at Caesarea. If there was a weather issue, he had to go to Caesarea instead of the, uh, the port up closer to where he's uh, at in Antioch, Syria. Tend to believe it's intentional in light of the fact he's going to go to Jerusalem. So he, he lands in Caesarea. He then goes to Jerusalem. The text says he landed at Caesarea and, and gone up. People are always going up to go to Jerusalem. And they always go down when they leave Jerusalem. Okay, there's a couple of things we can look at the text. The text doesn't say he went to Jerusalem. But based on the way the wording is in the text, we can assume, we can be pretty certain that this is what happened. He landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church at Jerusalem. Then he went down to Antioch, Syria. So the journey that began back at the end of Acts 15 has now come to an end. Now the text simply marks the end of this journey. The very next verse, in verse 23... Begins the third journey. There's no break here in the text. Paul's long journey back home wasn't enough to slow him down, it seems, or remove him completely from the Lord's service. And you know, I wonder how much his stay in Corinth served as a catalyst for him to keep going. I wonder if Paul had an extra hop in his step as he made his journey back to Antioch. And you can imagine that the report to the church was a big praise for all that God had accomplished along the way. Can you imagine Paul telling the church, letting them in on his message from the Lord in Corinth? And what a refreshment that would have been to the church to hear that. As you consider all that happened to Paul in Galatia, in Troas, in Macedonia, in Achaia, in Asia, which was in Ephesus for a short period of time, in the church at Jerusalem, what Paul went through was no easy task. See, Paul is in the midst of a journey. Paul is in the midst of a calling. He's in the midst of a mission. And Paul describes it this way here in Acts 20. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, None of these things move me, speaking of chains and tribulations that await me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God church we need to understand his journey is characterized in Philippians chapter 3 7 through 10 Paul says but what things were gained to me these things I counted loss for Christ yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him Paul's enduring strength to keep going is captured by his sense of purpose in the Lord. And he says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him we preach, that's Christ, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. He says, to this end I labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul's understanding of the mission is intricately, intricately, Connected to his union with Christ. And we see this in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you see Paul looking forward to his final reward, realizing that his earthly tent one day was going to be replaced with a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And Paul stays the course as he remembers where Christ's journey led him. And he says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, fact. 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. God rarely, if ever, hands out easy assignments. Are you going to follow Jesus on the journey of a lifetime? That's what it is. It might get tough. It might be exhausting. You might find yourself running close to E. I believe Paul was there as he arrived in Corinth. He didn't remain on E though. You see, following Jesus on the journey may drain you. It will cost you. It will require sacrifice. It will be strenuous. But it will be a faith-stretching journey. The genuineness of your faith is being put to the test in this journey. A servant the scripture says, is not greater than his master, but the Lord desires to use each one of you in this journey. And you don't run it alone. We do it together, not only as a body of Christ, but we do it together with him. If we are in Christ, we have his spirit residing and dwelling within us. We have his word to know how to run. You see, Paul had many companions running the race with him. Many of them crossed the finish line of faith with him. Some did not. Paul pressed on to win the prize. He ran the race in such a way as to win. Are you currently journeying with Jesus to win, church? By the way, I didn't make that up. That's Corinthians 9, 9, 24. Run in such a way to win. The gun's gone off. We aren't competing against one another. But we are intended to run in such a way as to get the prize. There's an effort called for training, discipline, focus, self-control, a gaze to the tape, to look toward the finish line, to strive with everything that you have for the one who loved you, for the one who gave himself for you. You know, every now and then, you see a job opening in the paper or online, and it may say something like this. Only serious inquiries, please. You you remember seeing that? You see, employers don't want to waste their time with people who are half-hearted. How much more with following Jesus? Paul's example, no doubt, is a shining one. He's about as serious as it gets, amen? I mean, he, it's, he's serious. Nothing half-hearted about Paul. And I believe that's exactly what the Lord has called his church to be about. No lukewarmness, no losing first love as we read about in Revelation, some of the churches. But running with him, trusting him for all things, crying out to him when the road gets rocky, leaning upon, as the hymn writer says, his everlasting arms, when you're worn out, when you're ready to stop along the journey, listening for his word to strengthen you when your heart's heavy. You see, church, we need to understand God is still speaking along your journey. Some of you maybe have not heard from him in quite some time. I hope and pray this text is an encouragement to your soul to hear from the Lord and to know that when you hear from him, it brings such encouragement to keep going in the journey. If you desire to follow Jesus, it'd be good 
to lend him your ear and hear what he has to say. And then run as he's called you to run. Run the race with all you've got. There's nothing like hearing from on high when you're feeling low. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your word is good and you are good. And we thank you for the example that you placed before us in your son Jesus, the one who is the author and perfecter of this race the one who went before us. We see even here in the text today, your servant Paul, who is running the race. He's in the middle of the journey. He's tired, he's beaten, he's worn down as he comes into Corinth. But Lord, you gave him a word, a word that encouraged his soul, a word that I believe was pivotal in his ministry, a word that was pivotal in his journey with you. And Father, right now, I know there are some here today may find themselves in the same place Paul was. They're just exhausted. They're beat down. They're tired. They feel worn out. Father, I pray that you would speak a word to them. I pray that you would breathe new life into them. I pray, Lord, some of them here may be feeling like the, that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel. Just, just tired. Just ready to be done. Father, I pray that you would breathe new life into them. Speak to them, I pray, through your word. Encourage their soul. Help them to look to the end. Help them to look to the tape. Help them to press forward and to not do it alone, but to know that they are connected to the parts of the body. Help them to know that you've given to them in Christ the Holy Spirit to guide them in all truth. That there is nothing anyone or anything can do to take the love of Christ from them. Remind them, Lord, of your comforting presence with them this morning, I pray. And we thank you for your word which gives us hope in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering. I pray we would as a church trust in you for all things. We would acknowledge you in all of our ways. And we would remember that you are a God who directs our steps. May we look to you for your direction. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.